You're listening to dialectradio.co.uk, your local community radio run by volunteers. Log on to our website at dialectradio.co.uk to find out more. I'm Patrick Henningsen, and I am the uh, founder of 21stCenturyWire.com. It's a news website. Uh, initially, it was just kind of a really uh, low-level blog, uh, low-budget blog. It still is a low-budget blog, but we try to do high-end um, news analysis and uh, get into the geopolitical realms and a number of other subjects. So, you know, trying really hard to drill down to you know, the real issues and look at the inner workings and see how the gears are turning in terms of, uh, of power um, and all the other issues that surround that, you know, like energy, politics, uh, history, um, and other sort of structures, unilateral, multilateral institutions, and how all these things feed into what we see uh, as the news playing out in front of us. And, of course, what we're going to give you is very different from what you might be getting on the mainstream media. So uh, this because we're, we're looking at it from a different prism altogether. We're trying to anyway, um, doing our best with, with the resources we have. But I think we do a better job than a lot of mainstream media outlets do um, with, with uh, one, one millionth of the operating budget. Patrick, your uh, take on recent events, please, because, uh, I mean, you're talking there, you even talked about history, didn't you? Uh, one of the things that we haven't really been taught about or told about at all in, in our current affairs is the parallels that a lot of people are drawing, particularly in the Middle East, not necessarily in Europe, because they're not being explained their history, uh, the parallels with what's going on now to the medieval crusades. Uh, yeah, there's the, that's definitely a valid valid uh comparison um it's the you've got the middle evil crusades you've got a number of other things that you can also uh compare this to um there are a lot of big agendas at play tony here not just the military agendas and not just the conquering of territories uh those things that you can really analyze and they sort of play out and there's a lot of different uh we all have skill sets that we can do to analyze this. There's other agendas, though, that are a lot deeper and a lot more uh, over a longer period of time. And with regards to the Middle East, we can get into this. I know you want to talk about uh, Syria and and Turkey, but there's a, there is a definite push in the West. Uh, I monitor talking points in media, and I see patterns uh, that emerge. And one of the patterns which has been emerging over the last 12 months has been talk of a reformation of Islam. And this is primarily calls coming out of the West, uh, mainly backed by uh, certain foundations and think tanks uh, from the United States, although there's a few affiliates in Europe as well. And so we see this talking point coming out and pundits are just repeating this in the wake of various uh, so-called terrorist attacks like San Bernardino and Paris is we need to do something about Islam. We need to reform it. It's a violent, radical religion by nature, and therefore it must be subdued. And when you do this, and Christianity had a reformation, and et cetera, et cetera. So what I see, Tony, here is this is kind of big picture, long-range uh, uh, social engineering that really comes down as a kind of a colonial, traditional kind of colonial tool. Uh, this has been done throughout history uh, to divide, basically divide and conquer, to subdivide, uh, you know, religious followings and within nations and within regions and have this is to compartmentalize what 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 used to be unified 
it would now be compartmentalized. And, and that's an ongoing process, Tony. It's not something that is going to happen tomorrow. This is a long-range agenda probably over the next 100 years or 200 well, I mean, years, I guess. You, what you're talking about there sounds almost like Syria, doesn't it? Compartmentalizing it, dividing up into bits. Yeah, yeah. So that that's that's definitely on the cards. Um, I would say that's definitely in the direct foreign policy directives of Washington. There's another one that's emerging, which I'd love your comment on, Tony. Uh, Ash Carter just testified in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee today, and he reiterated a talking point, which we had uh, brought up at 21st Century Wire over the last couple of weeks, which is the talk of an EU army. So Ash Carter was saying that, you know, the Europeans need to do more. The Europeans are part, our German partners, our French partners, etc., need to do more and they need to invest more in their military. So if you look at the problem and the, the crisis caused with NATO, you have a potential NATO meltdown right now with a sort of bad actor stroke, uh, ugly stepchild being Turkey and also some fundamental flaws in the in the NATO system. In other words, NATO's has uh, really hit the wall. It's gone about as far as it can go in a uh, fooling the public as to what its remit really is in the 21st century because it's really a relic of the Cold War. And B, uh, countries are supposed to voluntarily uh, contribute to it, and they're not all up to scratch. There's only one or two countries that are actually truly meeting their NATO uh, obligations in terms of spending 2% of their GDP on military spending and, you know, really taking leadership roles, if you will. But it's also hamstrung by the, by the nature of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So this uh, Article 5 is one of the only ways that you can mobilize the collective. And they've managed to cheat it a few times. And I don't think, I think Libya was a, it, it was a mixed blessing for NATO got away with murder in Libya by cheating a UN resolution, but at the same time, they hamstrung potential future operations. So basically, that was the final sort of card, if you will. They laid their whole hand on the table in Libya. And to me, that's the de- that was the death knell of, of NATO as we once knew it. And it must be replaced by an EU army. And we've had calls uh, from various leaders. Uh, Tony Blair mentioned it in his speech at the Henry Kissinger lecture series, uh, just a few days ago, uh, David Cameron and Angela Merkel are doing some horse trading with regards to the EU and the quid pro quo is Britain's going to be more uh, considerate towards uh, this idea of an EU army. But basically, Tony, I think it's a done deal, but it's just finding the political structures uh, in public to make it seem like it's uh, a good thing uh, to have a federal army in Europe. Well, we also have had heard quite a lot over the last few weeks of this organisation, Europol, particularly since the Paris attacks several weeks ago, um, which is the European-wide police force. Uh, there's definitely an attempt to um, create this kind of United States of Europe. Um, I would also add that I don't think that many of the British police forces or any of the regiments in the British Army would be particularly happy about just being literally under some kind of European command. Although, of course, they do go around the world where other NATO uh, generals are in command of British troops uh, from time to time. They certainly don't want that kind of thing to be happening permanently. So there may be a bit of pushback from the army against Mr Cameron and the deals he thinks he's doing with Angela Merkel. Uh, I'd also um, harken back to the uh, Iraq war where we had 
several units. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about commando units, special forces, for example, that were ordered over to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq at certain times. Um, and the, we were big announcements were made. Tony Blair has arranged for this unit to uh, be deployed and nothing happened. Basically, the units stayed here. And so there seemed to be a, a kind of a bit of a disconnect between politics and what the armed forces were prepared to do. Uh, I wonder what you make of that and whether you've seen anything similar going on in the U.S., Patrick. Uh, Not so much in the U.S., but, you know, I do know that there has been – there have been long-running agreements, basically, between uh, the United States and French – uh no no sorry britain and france actually for anglo franco uh military uh, agreement which has been done through a series of charities and this to me looks like it was kind of groundwork uh for putting a taking down barriers between nation states with well, regards to military I mean, for the first time in my life we were driving along the m5 motorway in the west of england patrick and came across some what looked like quite um, peculiar troops going in a big convoy uh, and whilst we were, we were actually in the process of overtaking them which took something like 15 minutes um, a friend of mine in the back was going through the various insignia on the side of these uh, and they turned out to be French so possibly part of this deal but uh, there's definitely an, an, an attempt to um, meld together the European powers under the EU and um, not just the political power, obviously, but uh, military and police powers. But yeah, like I'm, I say, I think a bit some pushback. But anyway, wh- wh- where do you think that's that's heading? What does it look like from your side of the pond? Um, well, f- from our side of the pond, it's that you know, the United States needs to have uh, a partner uh, that it can do to intervene with or to intervene on its behalf as well. Uh, I think it's found that in Saudi Arabia, in, Lem- in Yemen. Uh, recently this year. So they're basically Saudi Arabia is performing uh, a task that perhaps the United States might have done itself or maybe Israel or someone else in the past. But now it's being done by Saudi Arabia being able to exert its uh, hegemony in the region could be a good or a bad thing. Um, but in, in in terms of Britain's military, I think it's been stripped down quite a bit in recent years, but I think that's to create a sort of dependency, uh, to set it up for a future dependency within an EU army collective. Uh, but it's, it's at being able to intervene, Europe to intervene in a, in a much bigger and much more bolder way, uh, in conflicts like Syria. Uh, Germany is, is wanting to go all in, as you know. Uh, they've they've moved quickly into into that as well. So you've had call. I've also heard calls from top, you know, some media operatives, if you will, for a European CIA, a European FBI, and so these are all the trap. And also uh, the the former prime minister of Austria, a European border control, international uh, border force, and a coast guard. So these are all the trappings, well, I mean, Tony. That, that already exists in the form of this organisation, Frontex, and we've been doing some investigation into them. Uh, this is the European border force, um, looking like uh, actually taking on a kind of paramilitary style in certain countries. Uh, no one's really quite sure um, who they're working for, but uh, some of these migrants who are coming across um, the Mediterranean actually being assaulted by people who look like they're officials coming from, certainly from official ships, 
then just robbing them and, and disappearing off. And that appears to be linked to this organisation Frontex, which is the uh, rather gangster-like look, appearing um, European border agency. But uh, look, let's just have, take a little look at Turkey. Lots and lots of stuff has come out in the last few weeks about Turkey. And obviously with the shooting down the Russian jet, the Russians are now saying it didn't even enter um, Turkish airspace. Um, but uh, And also threatening possibly to close the Bosphorus. Uh, today, I think it is, um, Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, said uh, that he felt that the shooting down of the Russian jet was an invitation to war, but that the Russians were not going to oblige the Turkish. What, what do you make of Turkey? Well, t- tur- Turkey's in a really important uh, geostrategic position. I don't think uh, we need to talk too much about that. It's fairly obvious throughout history. In fact, it's it's always been that way. Turkey is so, so crucial, especially if you consider uh, some sort of a war between the West and Russia. Turkey is in reaching distance to the Ukraine, uh, but also right there at the doorstep in Syria. Turkey is also wanting to join the European family of nations. Uh, so then it's sharing a border with Syria. Then you have Europe butting up right against the Middle East. So Turkey was the last uh, buffer zone, if you would, between Europe and the Middle East. So that would change things greatly. Turkey is clearly a bad actor. I think that's beyond a doubt now uh, with regards to not just it's facilitating the rise of ISIS, but perhaps even doing business or helping to facilitate the, 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 the business that's going on there, not just oil trading, but arms, human trafficking, narcotics, weapons, you name it. Uh, Turkey's basically into it. And so I don't think the situation in Syria would be allowed to happen or would have been festering this long if not for the role of Turkey. Uh, and I think that's uh, beyond debate right now. It's fairly obvious. Um, the problem is Turkey's now... Uh, making noises, possibly sending tanks to the Ukraine. So you have a potential standoff, uh, sort of almost a war situation between Turkey and Russia. Diplomatic relations are almost frozen. Economic uh, trade or sanction, reciprocal sanctions in place. It's not a good good scene at all. Very, very dangerous. Uh, and if you consider Turkey's being manipulated a lot by the United States and NATO, uh, and it's not a good a good thing at all. It's it's to me very unsettling. What about um, Syria though? Because you know we've now got this uh, situation with the British vote in the House of Commons for bombing Syria. No boots on the ground as yet, anyway. But uh, certainly the the aircraft, the Royal Air Force, are uh, flying sorties now uh, against ISIS. Um, but. We had uh, either the same night that the British um, passed this vote in the House of Commons uh, or the the night after, I'm not sure, the uh, Israelis did a strike just north of uh, Damascus, something which, I mean, I've been following Middle Eastern affairs since my school days and we always looked at uh, Syria as a potential Third World War hotspot and the Israelis certainly ever, ever since the... Um, the 1967 Six-Day War and also the 1973, the October War, you know, the Yom Kippur War, have been itching to have a bash at Syria. Now they're doing it with um, hardly anyone noticing. 
Yeah, yep. Yeah. Oh, I had a report of a Syrian base which was hit by U.S. airstrike only a couple of days ago. Of course, the United States has denied this. This was my biggest fear and everyone's biggest fear when they started talking about no-fly zones uh, last year or even as early as 2013. No-fly zones, basically, that it would turn into uh, Western Air Forces giving uh, air cover to terrorists' groups on the ground with the with the main objective of overthrowing the government in Damascus, and I think that still that plan is still uh, active. It's still on the table. The United States just this week uh, for, did the third rebranding exercise of the moderate opposition. They're calling it the Syrian Arab Coalition, which is very deceptive, considering that the Syrian army is Arab in Syria, and they they are the boots on the ground fighting terrorism in Syria. But it, they're trying to rebrand it. The U.S. So they're trying to put al-Nusra, the Islamic Front, uh, and all these various uh, terrorist organizations that make up the conclave under a banner that's so acceptable to sell in the West, which is Syria-Arab Syria, uh, Coalition. And so this is a rebranding exercise, and eventually you could meld aspects of ISIS into that coalition too, and no one would notice in the West because judging by the level of the conversation I saw in the House of Commons with some of the people that voted for this war, they really don't have a clue what's going on on the ground. So it'd be very easy to to fool them with the sleight of hand of rebranding, which I think is that's what's happening. Um, so it's I, I think that's what it is. It's, it's about protecting uh, a lot of terrorist groups, isolating ISIS as a brand, but then sort of shaving off bits of ISIS into the other terrorist groups with the, the end game is to maintain instability uh, in the region and also to overthrow or regime change in Damascus. And that still has always been and will always be the number one objective. It's not fighting terrorism. It's not defeating ISIS. First, it's regime change. And then they think they can pick up the pieces after that, much like what happened in Libya. We're now in a situation where there's uh, almost like a kind of standoff, getting ready for a kind of a judo hold, a judo throw uh, between NATO and Russia in Syria. Uh, would you agree? And, and if so, I mean, where do you see this heading? Um, I, th I think it's going to be tricky with NATO. Uh, NATO has lost a lot of le its legitimacy. Uh, there's two two things. One is Libya. Uh, well, the second is Afghanistan. They're way, way out of their catchment area in Afghanistan and uh, also in Ukraine as well. NATO intel It's no secret to anyone that NATO intelligence is active and uh, egging on uh, instability in the Ukraine and now in the Crimea. And there's also reports of uh, Chechnyan Islamist fighters, many of whom have done the rotation in Syria, are now fighting uh, in the Crimea. They've had attacks on Crimean infrastructure, specifically the electrical grid, uh, in the last couple of weeks. Plus, you have the neo-Nazi factions, that right sector factions NATO's been working with. This is a really, really ugly uh, multi-front war that's being fought. Uh, against Russia, essentially. That's my opinion of it. If you look at the Ukraine, Crimea, and Syria. Uh, but so it's going to be hard for NATO to get in there. I think, I think what they're going to try to do is they need, they'll milk it for a little while longer. Then they need a big crisis to basically call for a European army. And I, I don't know what that crisis is going to be, Tony, but I know it has to be something significant in order to get the sort of speed movement on that. Uh, so I'm not sure what that crisis is going to be, but they definitely will need something big uh, in order to fast track uh, the fusion. of the, NATO will still be there, Tony, uh, but it's not going to be front and center like it is now. Uh, it'll be eventually be replaced 
and it'll become like an office. It'll become like a kind of a, a shadow of its former self in Brussels. But the EU army will have preeminence uh, over what NATO used to be. What do you make of the role of the Paris attacks and the, you've had recently in the States the San Bernardino shootings? Uh, they're very interesting. They're very interesting. I'm I'm very skeptical of these events generally because of the timing. Uh, I'm also skeptical of how quickly uh, policy moves uh, in very quickly in the wake of these. In the case of France, they didn't even wait 48 hours before they waged airstrikes, uh, basically in Syrian territory. Didn't really hit anything uh, as the reports came out. Uh, empty targets or redundant old U.S. targets. Uh, there seems to be a lot of that going on in, in Syria and northern Iraq as uh, some members of the coalition, including the UK, are hitting uh, pre uh, targets that have been bombed uh, before oil fields and so forth. But um, uh, the Paris attacks, you look at what's come out of it. It's, it's shutting down European borders, uh, talk about free society is a bad thing, uh, freedom of movement is a bad thing. Uh, we need to launch more, send more troops, more military assets to the Middle East to fight ISIS. When in fact the Paris attacks, there is no real forensic case, Tony, that puts ISIS in Paris. Just as there is no actual forensic case that puts ISIS in the Sinai blowing up the Russian plane, nor ISIS in Beirut uh, with the bomb recent Beirut bombings. And or San Bernardino. So, but yet you hear these all uh, rattled off in a list by politicians and media people as if it's like a script that they have to basically repeat this checklist of ISIS has now got a global reach. And a lot of this can be definitely be an illusion, Tony. Uh, the, I, I, I'm, I like looking at the forensic case. And in, in the case of San Bernardino, you cannot, we can't put the two shoot, uh, the female shooter, especially at the scene of the shooting. No one can ID her. They said they're wearing masks. She's a five foot four, a uh, 120 pound Pakistani housewife. The, uh, the, the likelihood of her carrying body armor and a full tactical package and firing a point two, two, three, uh, automatic Smith and Wesson rifle is a laughable scenario. Yet this is what is put across as, the official story. I mean, has has uh, anybody it, positively identified them at the, at the scene actually doing the shooting? No, no, they haven't. This this is something about this case, Tony, that's been glossed over. Um, you you could potentially ID a male uh, of 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 a certain you know five eleven six foot because uh, he was they're both supposedly masked. With the reports are the shooters were masked. So there was no there's no support to the idea that the wife the the Muslim housewife who is cooking uh, chicken korma uh for her husband is going to be GI Jane overnight just like there is no forensic evidence to put anybody from Syria at the Paris shootings we do have a fake Syrian passport which by all intents and purposes looks to be planted at the scene uh and also a German minister agrees with me on that uh, so again, but the talking point, Tony, was that the migrant crisis bled into uh, cause a terrorist event in, in, in the heart of Europe. That was the narrative. And they acted immediately. And all these sort of policies are coming into place fast and furious. OK, and without, so I mean, for yeah. Paris, for example, I mean, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with ISIS paratroopers that come in just trained by the SAS, uh, by Navy SEALs and then uh, disappear out in cars or maybe taken out by helicopters? Who's doing these shootings? 
Well, I, I have to look at history, Tony, is is the only thing that we can do is we can look at a historical uh, event in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, where, but one whereby no one was actually, I believe, arrested or tried for uh, waging domestic terror, organized domestic terror on European soil, which was Operation Gladio. So this, to me, Paris looks like a classic Gladio-style event. And if you look at the policies and the political objectives that were achieved from Paris, it's almost identical in a way to what Gladio sought to achieve uh, through its activities and through various proxy groups and whatever terrorist groups, political extremist factions and so forth. So instead of working through communist parties or the extreme political left or right in Europe, they're just basically using the the illusion of Islamic extremist terrorist groups in order to sort of perform the same exact acts, basically. So I don't know what you – you studied Gladio, Tony, so I know that you could probably weigh in heavily on that comparison well yes i mean if you have a look at uh, the three-part alan frankovich film which is really probably the easiest and quickest way to assimilate uh, this factual stuff about gladio uh, as well as i mean it's a little bit easier probably than going through the italian uh, or the swiss or the belgian parliamentary inquiries i think quite big thick tomes into that particular operation um as you said in the 60s 70s and 80s and, and i think possibly into the 19 early 1990s too yes yes uh, in the 90s you, you had um, basically um, terrorist attacks going on um, many European countries, particularly Italy, also uh, Germany, um, Belgium. Um, no one's quite sure about the involvement of this in the Northern Ireland problems, uh, You know the, the, the troubles we had in Northern Ireland. But uh, there's definitely a links, and it is now absolutely 100% proven to fascist elements employed by uh, NATO intelligence uh, in Brussels and working with very closely with the CIA and MI6 to do the training. A lot of the training was done in Poole in Dorset, a beautiful kind of uh, seaside town where there's a bit of uh, training area for the Navy down there where a lot of this Gladio training was done. Uh, and many of the uh, special forces that were sent in to do these killings of Europeans from European um, armies were unaware, not necessarily aware of the, the, their role. For example, um, one of the people in the frankovich documentary talks about his uh being sent to do a a kind of exercise which obviously as part of his training was perfectly normal but that exercise was um uh, clocking when a supermarket was opened what time in the morning what how many people were there at the time who was doing the locking and unlocking then tracking the person with the keys to the supermarket back to his home this kind of thing Uh, and then only lo and behold a few months later uh, there was a live attack by special forces. Uh, it looks as if now it was the SAS that were flown over to do that attack where the soldiers were wearing carnival masks. And um, that was what was now is now known as the Brabant Massacres in Belgium. Um, these took place just about the same time as the uh, United States government was trying to put pressure on uh, the Belgian government to keep their cruise missiles, these portable sort of nuclear weapons that drive up and down the motorways and try and hide in the bushes in, in uh, and, and the woods of Belgium. So there was definitely, you see, again at that time, very much uh, at the same time, a pressure from the US foreign policy on the Belgian government uh, to toe the line. And the effect of the Brabant massacres over several months in the mid-1980s was very, very powerful. It effectively uh, got rid of all resistance to 
um, in, within the Belgian Parliament to implementing the uh, the cruise missile policy and uh, the whole of the Belgian Parliament pretty much and the people said, well, yes, obviously we need these for our own protection. Well, look at that. Look at that, Tony, and then compare that, overlay that to today and look at how the resistance has just been lifted almost overnight. David Cameron calls for a war vote opportunistically seizes on the wave of emotion of Paris to do what maybe he wouldn't have been able to do so well at the end of December before Christmas. Well, he tried, so, to, he tried two years ago and failed miserably. In fact, it was yeah. left with egg on his face, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that would have been two times failure there had it not been for Paris. I really don't think they could have mustered up the political will to do that at any other time other than in the immediate aftermath of the Paris attack. So, Tony, this what you're I'm getting chills with what you're telling me about Gladio at that time and how quickly they were able to implement things. And I see an exact repeat of this today. So I I can only draw the conclusion, Tony, that that we are looking at Gladio 2.0 in the 21st century. Because it worked before, why why not use it again? What, what do you mean by Gladio 2.0? How do you mean? Well, inst, inst, uh, so the, the stakes are higher. Now we, we've got projecting geopolitical aims and missions uh, further afield than, than even Europe. So this is a much bigger Eurasian play. So this is in with Islamic extremism rather than... So before in the Cold War, communi- the, you know, communism was a real divisive... Uh, aspect that could be tapped into in terms of terror, uh, but now it's Islamic extremism. Uh, so this is the new new communism for the West. This is the new boogeyman of the West now. It's it's Islamic uh, radical radicalized Islam. So with this, you can do a whole lot of manipulation uh, if you can control the parameters of the theater uh, and you can control the stage. You can achieve a lot, basically. Is it? I mean, is it really all about oil? Uh, because surely the West wouldn't be crazy enough. Our leaders here in the NATO countries wouldn't be crazy enough to go to war with Russia. I mean, Russia has got a few uh, firecrackers up its sleeve. I don't think it's not just about oil. Is a part of it. Gas is maybe a bigger part of it than even oil is uh, in terms of uh, sub-regional dominance. Uh, gas is is emerged as incredibly important in that respect. Uh, certainly, Syria is sitting uh, on top of great deposits. Uh, and I, I was a report that just came out that showed that this had been proven in 2005, and all of a sudden we saw hostilities being ramped up after that. But oil and gas, plus we have the, just the military industry, Tony, that in itself is a juggernaut now. This is a you know multi-hundreds trillion dollar global industry. That's a juggernaut. We have so many different factors that feed into this. Plus you have the social economic plus the religious uh, aspects of it. Uh, you have old old power plays, old geographic power plays of, of the uh, Halfer McKinder uh, flavor with Eurasia. Plus we have the situation with Israel and you have to look at Israel. We've, everyone's turned their head away from what's been going on in Jerusalem and the West Bank because of this latest crisis. So uh, again, that's that's ongoing. That's not stopping, nor is the battle for the Sinai Peninsula. That's an ongoing we still have peacekeepers in the Sinai, U.S. troops, 700 of them, to basically watch what Egypt and Israel are doing in the Sinai Peninsula. So it's still today, after all these years. So these, these are all live plays, as is Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of pressure on the Saudi monarchy right now, too, uh, on many fronts. And I, I, there's noises coming out of CIA that, uh, the, I quote, the Saudi royal family is not long for this world. End of quote. I heard that last week from a CIA operative. So... 
there's a lot going on, Tony, and stakes are high. They've never been higher, and Syria is right in the middle of it. Patrick, where do we find your work online? Where's the best place? Uh, the best place is 21stCenturyWire.com, uh, but also I have stuff on globalresearch.ca and, uh, and a few things elsewhere that get syndicated, but mainly 21stCenturyWire.com. Patrick Edison, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Tony. That's all for this week. Dialects Bristol's first weekly MP3 podcast broadcast on community radio stations in Bristol, Swindon, Preston and St Albans in the past. If you're online, you can subscribe to our emails or download the podcast from dialectradio.co.uk. Thanks to our guests this week in the Syria special, that is Patrick Chalmers from uh, author of Fraudcast News, former Reuters journalist, and Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire, the website that critiques the mainstream media, particularly when it comes to geopolitics and terrorism propaganda. And also thanks to studio engineer Rick Margetts. That was Dialect, and I'm Tony Gosling, wishing you a very good week. Thanks for listening. Till the same time next week, goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.